0: Welcome to Second Service this morning, and we're on Chapter 15 of um, Second Samuel. I'm going to get right in it today. I uh, had a hard time getting it finished, First Service, and so I'd like for us to turn to Chapter 15 of Second Samuel, and we're going to see what the Word says today. Appreciate all those teachers each week and it's been awesome I hope you're following the story can't wait to find out what's going to happen next in chapter 15 of 2nd Samuel Absalom's conspiracy in the course of time Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate whenever anyone came uh With a complaint he placed before the king uh, for a decision. Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from one of those tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So... The one thing I want to see here, why was Absalom trying to steal the hearts of the people? And one of the reasons that he was rebellious, he was a rebellious son. And I talked a little bit about that uh, in the first service about, I want us to get in the shoes of Absalom and find out if you were treated the way Absalom was, you know, toward the end, we kind of see that Absalom's a monster, right? And uh, we... Think They said that Absalom was the most beautiful man in Israel. If they had, you know, an American idol, he would have won it. Or an Israeli idol, he would have won. They said he had long hair. He, there was no imperfections. He was absolutely perfect. And they said he was gorgeous. He was beautiful. And so he had this beauty. And uh, he was out there. He seemed to be sincere. He seemed to be caring. In other words, he seemed to be political. <laughs> You know, have you ever had, uh, the politicians, they'll say, well, the other guy, you know, is not taking care of this and that. Well, if I were elected, I would do this, you know, so he was politicking for the job and he was rebellious. And actually he had some reasons to be rebellious. Uh, Amnon, uh, was his brother and Amnon raped his sister Tamar. And, uh, You got to realize David had eight wives and he had uh, children by quite a few of those wives. And you sometimes don't, you know, you don't get it. I was telling in the first service that my wife, her mom and her dad's, uh, her dad was uh, in the military. And so they, mom and dad got divorced. Actually, it was pretty tough in North Carolina. They had to actually physically with a police, a sheriff had to pull the kids out of the father's car and put them in the mother's car while they were screaming and yelling. They didn't realize that would be the last time they'd see their dad in a long time. There was uh, six, uh, six kids. There was nine kids total between the two parents. So all at once, you move all these kids into the same house, and, you know, half the kids are going, well, that ain't my mama. The other half are saying, that ain't my daddy. But somebody's got to keep the chaos down, right? So like the stepdad would say, I'm the head of this house. You're going to do what I say you're going to do. Well, it caused a lot of resentment in the children, in Sharon's brothers and sisters. Some of them are not over it till this day. And there there was, and you might say there is, quite a bit of dysfunction. And there is in all of us. I mean, but one of the things that... Uh, Josh McDowell wrote about years ago, he wrote about the, the disconnect generation. And he, he, uh, he had got this quote from a teenager who said, I'm so lonely, I can't stand it. I want to be special to somebody, but there's nobody who cares about me. I can't remember anybody ever touching me or smiling at me or wanting to be with me. I feel so empty inside. So you can imagine a a family unit getting together and there's that many in the family. There's a lot of kids not getting any FaceTime with their mom or dad or they're not getting any physical touch or they're not getting any I love you or any, you know, this kind of stuff. And a lot of times they forget that the kids are the ones in the squeeze of all this. The kids didn't ask for this to happen. And so the kids are very disconnected. And he said there's a very disconnected generation. They wonder sometimes why, what, what is going on with kids getting a gun and going and shooting up a bunch of friends at school or uh, all the, the stuff that's going on now that is normally males. Well, they feel disconnected. And what they all seem to have in common is they have no relationship with their father. Have no relationship with Their father and they're longing for a relationship. So in the scriptures, we see where Absalom, he, nobody, David, his dad, the king, didn't do anything about Amnon raping his own sister, Absalom's sister. So Absalom said, you know, and they said, now don't cause no stir in the house. Let's keep this down because nobody wants a king where this kind of stuff's going under. And you know, a lot of families are like that. Don't tell nobody. We don't want nobody. This is embarrassing. Don't tell anybody. But yet, it's going on in the it's going on in the family dynamic, and so the white elephant in the room is the fact that this kind of stuff is going on, and so David says, uh, you know, to keep it quiet. Well, then he figures, well, if my dad's not going to do anything about it, I'm going to avenge what has happened to my sister, and so. Uh, Absalom, he gets this plan together and they're shearing sheep and he made sure that his brother Amnon come along on the trip and so they killed, he killed his brother Amnon and he done it though because of what happened to his sister. Well then as the story goes on, uh, he runs away. Of course he figures maybe after David realizes what's going on, David would let his son come back home. Three years go by, and Absalom can't get back home. He keeps trying to get back home, and nothing works. Uh, he Finally, there's a concocted story that Joab has this, this woman tell, and uh, Sam done a great job talking about the great pretender. It was kind of like a story... You ever get into a story like one time there was this pastor in Crossville and he had three other teaching pastors and they were on like the bypass. Like, it sounds like you're telling a story about me. Well, that's the kind of story that this woman told. And so David was hearing this story and he goes, by chance, uh, I need to ask you something. By chance, did Joab have anything to do with what's being said And the lady goes, yeah, he did. And so it's one of those things where they want, they really do want David to realize I'm the man. You know, it said about two boys in a field, one kills the other. David, that happened to me. And my two sons, one killed the other. And so David looks to Joab, he said, what's up? Well, what's up? Your son has been in another... City for three years now in Hebron, and he wants to come back. Well, we've got evidence in Scripture in the 14th chapter that David longed to see his son Absalom. It said there he longed, he longed to see. So you've got wrong, and now you got longed. He longed to see his son, and then we know that Absalom longed to see. David, his father. Why, why Why is it that we we can sometimes forgive a stranger but it's hard to forgive a family member? Uh, talking about my my wife's family, a lot of you have heard this story, you've been around here very long, but my wife, uh, uh, the family dynamics uh, when we got married at 17, it ended up You know, we thought, well, you know, my family would be on this side of the church and her family would be on that side of the church. And at the last minute, uh, she wanted her real father, her flesh-and-blood father, to give her away. And uh, the mother didn't, wanted the stepfather. Well, he was not her father, even though Sharon grew to love her stepfather and uh, her siblings. But so Sharon said, no, I want my father. And so it ended up that Sharon's family didn't come to the wedding. So Sharon walked her own self down the aisle. So they, it was hard feelings through the years. And for years, of course, her dad, her was estranged. Her dad married someone younger than my wife. He married somebody younger than my wife. And so I went to a conference in uh, Georgia. Uh, Bill Gothard was teaching there and he said, the way your wife feels about her father many times will translate into your marriage. So make sure you marry someone that loves her father, that loves her father, that gets along good with her father, because it translates into the husband of the family. And same way, see how the husband, how he feels about his mother, because a lot of the time that transfers to his wife. And so I gotta, I come back from that conference, and I realized that... Uh, so a lot of times at Christmas, Sharon was not very happy. And she had a longing for what she missed in childhood. Sometimes a missing father will cause a longing in the daughter. And the first father figure that comes along, that she's going to get with them. And she may not get with them the right way. Because there's a longing. There's a, there's a need. You know, there's a longing to belong. The disconnected generation today, what they're longing, they're longing to belong to a mother and a father. And a lot of times that's divided half time over here and half time over there. And I understand marriages don't all work out. I mean, and don't take a bunch of guilt about that. Sometimes it just don't. It takes two people. But anyway, we uh, I got on the phone and I told Sharon, I said, you need to call your dad. I'm not calling him. And so I took it in my own hands one day. I got on the phone and I called her dad. He lived in another state. I said, me and your daughter, Sharon, is coming to see you. Oh, no, you can't come see me. I said, I didn't ask if we're going to come see you. I told you we're going to come see you. I know where you work. He ran a restaurant. I said, I'm going to come sit in your restaurant. And sooner or later, you're going to acknowledge that we're in your restaurant. And so he didn't like the idea of it, but we drove to another state, went to the restaurant, sat there, and we asked if, uh, you know, if he was there, and they said yes, and just said, well, tell him his daughter is here. So he came out, and he sat with us and talked a little bit. These are your grandchildren you've never met. And then uh, he never invites us to the home. We leave and drive eight hours back. And the next Christmas, we do the same thing. We're coming to see you again. Well, it's not a good time. We're coming to see you again. We show up, and uh, we meet, and he stays a little longer with us, never invites us to his house. And, uh, but then some things begin to happen. Sharon would send him Christmas cards, and he began to send her Christmas cards. She had a longing to be back with her dad, but there was a lot of water went under the bridge. The, make the long story short, the relationship was rebuilt. We went to the family reunion with him at one time. We met his wife that's younger than Sharon. and uh, but you know, before uh, he died, he come to Crossville. We were starting this church, and uh, we met him at a hotel, and we said, "You know we, we do church on Sunday morning, and of course you, we will get we right after church. we'll go eat." He said, "Well, can I go to church with y'all?" Well, he said, well, you sure can. That morning, he come to church. He uh, came down the front. He took communion. He gave his heart to the Lord. And about, about two or three weeks later, he had a massive heart attack at his job, and he died. Sharon had a longing, and he had a longing, but it took a long time to get that relationship back together. It's not surprising to me that Absalom is rebellion rebellious because he has a longing. He has an itch that nobody will scratch. There's a lot of young people and young men and women that are acting out in society today because they have a longing for a belonging to a family. They they want to be connected. They're not going to say that. Maybe they don't even know that. But that's what they need. They need to belong. So Abelon, Absalom, uh, he ban, you know, he's banished for three years. And in this story, they said, you're treating this young man in a way that God wouldn't. God didn't even banish you when you done this thing with Bathsheba. God forgave you. And he said that the sword would not... You know, you're going to, you, you you planted some bad seed, but you, you know, you're going to reap some of that, but God still loves you. And so in this story, now David is being more of an authoritative person than God. He's not going to forgive. Josh McDowell found out that rules minus relationship equals rebellion. So it don't matter if you're a, a, a stepfather you go, well, somebody's got to keep, you know, keep this house in order, so I'm going to require it. Well, the kids might go, well, you're not my dad. I don't have to follow your rules. And the kids may say, she's not my mom. I don't have to follow those rules. So he's got a point there that rules minus relationship causes rebellion. And it takes some time for families to mesh together where they may have some respect for the mother or they have some respect for the father but you have that whole time there that what it breeds primarily is rejection and longing and rebellion. That's why we got a very rebellious, and the Bible said in the last days there'd be a great deal of, he said in the last days there'd be nations against nation, but what it really means in the real language is there'll be ethnic group against ethnic group. So there'll be these, these, uh, these seemingly friendships or communities that they are unreconcilable They've been hurt by one another. And, you know, nobody's going to keep, you know, they're only going to keep the rules to the as much as they feel love. So the more love that you can display upon your child, the more that child might be willing to keep your rules. But you're going to have to double up on the love. Rules plus relationship will get the response that you want. And I thought that was very, very good. So what happens when they don't get the love, but yet there's, the requirement of the rules. They act out. They are passive aggressive. It's like the little boy, the mom says, sit down in church. So he sits down. She about sets on him to get him to sit down. And he said, well, I'm maybe sitting down on the outside but I'm standing up on the inside. How many's ever been like that in a marriage maybe? I'm doing what you say on the outside but inside I don't agree with you at all. So we understand being passive aggressive Sometimes you're keeping the rules, but you're not really keeping the rules. In your sight, I'm keeping the rules. When I get out of your sight, I'm going to do what I, I please because I don't have any respect for you whatsoever. That was going on. And, and, day, and, and Absalom was gone for three years, and he wanted to come home. And so finally David said, okay, he can come back. But here's what David said. He can come back to Jerusalem, but I don't want to see his face. I don't want to see his face. So he came back, he said, well, my dad, finally, I'll get, I'll get an a, a audience with him. But it didn't happen. He waited and waited. So Absalom knew that Joab was the man that could get stuff done. He was like David's right-hand man. And so David talks to Absalom, or Absalom talks to, and he sends a note to Joab, I want you to get an audience with the king, my dad. Jo, Joab didn't pay him no mind. So David got another request. I want to have a meeting with my dad and I want you to arrange it. And Joab just turned a deaf ear to Absalom. So here you got you got David won't see his son and then David's uh, you know the man you have to go through to get to David won't even listen to Absalom. And so what does he do? What does Absalom do to get the attention that he needed? He goes and sets Joab's field on fire. He sets Joab's field on fire. How many believes your, chi- your children might start some fires? In church, somebody call, what are you doing? I'm putting out fires. And us pastors, that means we're dealing with this problem. We're dealing with that problem. We're putting out fires. You may be putting out fires in your marriage right now. You may be putting out fires with your children or your stepchildren right now. So you know what I'm talking about. It's something that really does happen. So he sets his field on fire. I believe our Heavenly Father, if, he, if we won't hear him, and he, can't, and, he, and he can't get us to seek his face, He'll set our fields on fire. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he wrote a message years ago called God will set your fields on fire. God has ways of getting mine and your attention. Absalom may have been a horrible person, but uh, Absalom was being used by God. To bring discipline to David. Because when David done this thing with Bathsheba. He said. You know just like if you took a man's sheep. It has to be repaid four times. He said the sword is going to come to your house four times. David really raped Bathsheba. Because he had the authority over her as king. And he brought her in. And you know the king says you're going to do this. And so she did. And now should he not be. You know, the apple don't fall far from the tree, so now one of David's sons is raping somebody. And, you know, David, so then one of his other sons kills somebody, kills kills his brother. So David's got one son killing the other son and one raping. What kind of dysfunctional family is that? And you thought you had a dysfunctional family. So now we see why He couldn't get an audience. Finally, he gets back there. After two years, he burns down uh, the barley fields of uh, uh, Joab. So Joab said, what do you want? What do you want? Don't burn my fields down. But he got his attention, right? Sometimes your teen will do what it takes to get your attention. How many has been that teen before? Come on, be honest. Jesse, you ain't got your hand up. (laughs) I'm kidding. But I'm telling you, I've been that teen before. You know, I'll get my parents' attention. They do. They do that. Kids do that. But you know what? Adults do that too. And God can get our attention. But I won't read all of the story up there, but uh, Absalom is quite successful. He asks permission from David later. David, he gets that audience with David. David kisses him. How many of you know everybody kisses you don't love you? He kissed him and was like maybe this is a kiss. You're thinking it means something. I mean, get out of here. Goodbye. Some people kiss you goodbye, but anyway, it wasn't a very it wasn't a very sincere, and uh, so it didn't start a relationship. It didn't start you know David and Absalom going and getting a hamburger together or a, or a lamb sandwich or none of that stuff. The relationship was still dead, and so Absalom said, you know. When I was away for those three years, I told the Lord if I could get this relationship back with my dad, if I could get back, I, then I want to go and honor God in Hebron. Hebron's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were buried. And so he goes up there. And one of the reasons he goes, he's continuing on this sowing seeds of him being the next king. So he goes back to Hebron and see David started his kingdom in Hebron. And then he decided to move the kingdom to Jerusalem, and so how many thinks the people in Hebron was a little hacked off at David for moving the kingdom away from them? You, you'd probably be like, you know, I moved here. I, I started selling stuff here. I had a job here, and then you moved the kingdom over there to Jerusalem, and I don't like you anymore. David, you you shouldn't have done that, and so where people are disappointed or hacked off or whatever it's easy. They're easy prey for somebody to come along that's good looking. That's how a lot of affairs starts. If you're good looking, how many guys in here has dealt with that all your life? You're just, <laughs> you're just good looking. You can't help it. You just can't help it. You, feel, you, we, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> and you know, You may be at work and you go to lunch, and, well, I tell you what, this is going on in my marriage. Boy, and, you know, just like Absalom, he's good looking. He goes, well, you know, I tell you what, a pretty thing like you, if you were my wife, that wouldn't be going on. And it starts putting thoughts in their minds, and pretty soon someone's having an affair. And whose fault is it? It's the husband and the wife. There's probably some unfinished business of the husband. And the wife felt rejected. And the wife felt like she couldn't get any FaceTime with her husband. She couldn't get a listening ear with her husband. And she finally found somebody that would. And we don't want to admit that all this goes on, but it does go on in our life today. It's time that we recommit Uh, I'll tell you that. How many ever watched Leave It to Beaver? Raise your hand. These are all the old ones in the building. (laughs) How many remember Mrs. Cleaver and Ward? And how many remembers Eddie Haskell? Eddie Haskell. Hello, Miss Cleaver. Cleaver. You look so beautiful today. He was great at flattery. And, you know, and finally, Beave and Waller would go, "Uh, shut up, uh, you know, Eddie. You're just always flattering. And when he got away from where they were at, he would say, yeah, I made your mom feel good today. Uh, But the inevitable happened because David would not restore that relationship that he was really the problem with. He didn't restore the relationship. He put it off. I don't think David liked uh, confrontation. You know, in the ministry, you're going to have confrontation. If you don't like, in leadership, you're going to have confrontation. If you don't like confrontation, you're not going to do well in the ministry because sometimes you have to. You can make confrontation your friend. And, you, you know, when to have confrontation is when you first know. Don't let it go too long. If you are on the outs with your spouse, fix it. If you're on the out with a friend, a brother, a sister, mother, try to fix it. If with with all that within you, try to fix it because while you're not fixing it, other thoughts are going through their head and this rebellion, this re, this rebellion that took place to overthrow David happened primarily because David wouldn't do what needed to be to be restored. So, we get to the end of the part. I'm fixing to finish up here. He had uh, David, his condition was, I kind of spent a lot of time about where uh, Absalom, what David's condition was. David had been betrayed by his own son, Ab- Absalom. And through clever guys, Absalom had gradually stolen the hearts of the people. He placed himself at the gate of the city and would greet those people. So you know the whole story there of how he eventually turned the hearts of the people. And uh, he would say to them, you know, I I can do a much better job if I would be the, you know, if I was your leader, if I was your king, I would take care of these problems. And uh, Absalom, now he's got an army that runs ahead of him. And uh, now this army, he gets to Hebron and these people that are upset with David, he gets them on his side. They rise up. And he said, when you hear the trumpets stand up and yell that uh, now Absalom is the king of Hebron. And which was not too far from, uh, from Jerusalem. And then uh, people realized then that the overthrow has started. And Absalom and his army are marching toward Jerusalem. And David, rather than have bloodshed in the city, decided to flee from the city into the wilderness. And as they're leaving the city, Zadok, the priest, and the sons were carrying the Ark of the Covenant when David saw them. And David ordered that the Ark of the Covenant be sent back to Jerusalem. And here's what David says. He said, the king, uh, verse 15, 25, the king said to Zadok, carry back the ark of God into the city for if, if I shall find favor in the eyes of God, that's kind of our word, grace. If I can find grace in the eyes of God or favor in the eyes of God, he will bring me again back to Jerusalem and show me it and the habitation. But David said, if he thus... But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here I here am I. Let him be done as it seems good to him. There's a great thing that happens in a very tragic time of David's life. David realized there's a lot of things he can't fix. He, he waited too long. You know, sometimes people come in, want to fix their marriage or something. And, you know, one of the others say, uh, you know, that... Too little, too late. I've been trying to get you to fix it for years. You don't care. The person, though, that David had surrendered his heart to God. You know when David done this, David watched the the people that were with him pass by. And David saw that even some of his best friends didn't come and follow. And David said, y'all go on. And he was at the place where he used to worship God. I thought that's very interesting in this passage, where he used to worship God. And David gets down and he prays. And you know where that was at is in the Mount of Olives. And David got down and prayed. And I think he really prayed to God and said, God, I've been stubborn. I've been prideful for a long time. I've caused this to come on my children. I've caused this to come upon the house of God and now I'm going to leave and God if it be your will I'll come back to it one day but if it's not your will I surrender to your will. There's the offspring of David the greater David called Jesus Christ he was in that same garden possibly within feet of where David was. Jesus gets down gets on his knees and he begins to pray and he said Lord if it be your will let this cup pass from me David had people that he once was around now was against him he had the Pharisees were against him had a lot of people against him they said Lord if it be your will let this cup pass from me they were coming to want to crucify him and so he went over and prayed and he come back and he said couldn't you tarry one hour So he goes back and he prays a second time. And he comes back and they're still sleeping. He goes and he prays a third time. And now he's praying so hard that his sweat becomes his great drops of blood. Amazing thing about that olive press in Jerusalem. We learned about that when we went over there. They used to press the olives three times. The very first pressing was the most clear olive uh, pressing, that was the virgin olive oil that was used for worship and the priesthood, the anointing oil that kind of thing that was the best of the best of the oil then they would take those same olives and those pit and they would press them with a heavier weight the next time they would take the oil off of that, and that would be used for light, household stuff, lights they'd burn in the little candle things oil lamps then they would put a even a heavier weight upon it now they're crushing down to the, the peels and the pits and there's so much weight crushing down upon those olives that now the olive oil is turning red and this was kind of like a more trashy dirty looking but they could let it they could use that for soap and they could wash their self. Folks, when Jesus went in the Mount of Olives, when he prayed that first time, the second time, he is our anointing. He is our light. And he is the one that washes us from our sins. David gets up, and I want to share a few things about David here in this last part. The person who has true peace and contentment is the person who has totally yielded their life to the will of God. If you're going through any of this stuff I'm talking about today, you've got relationships that are so bad, so horrible, I want you to turn it over to God and commit to leave it in God's hands. As long as I'm trying to order my life and I am insisting that God follow my decisions, I will be subject to strife and worry and fear and discontentment. You know, there's false prophets that say, well, you can just name it, and claim it, you can ask God for it, and you can confess it, and God will have to do it. That would, that would put you in, on the throne and make God your servant. Sort of a private genie in a bottle. Who is the subject of your wishes? This creates a lot of problems for God, for God is not subservient to anybody, especially us. God does not have to obey our commands or our wishes, even in prayer. He is the Lord, and He is sovereign. He can and do as He pleases, and He wants, and whatever He wants, He can do. Have you ever thought how foolish it is for me to try to tell God how He should run the world? And yet, how many times have we instructed Him on how He should run the world and run our lives? In my prayers, I express my desires to the Lord, but then he is free to do as he pleases. Think about David for a moment. David is now up in years, and now he's almost totally alone. He's being driven by, from his home by a rebellious son that he calls. At this point, the future is very uh, uncertain for David. People have turned against David. In fact, his closest friends and counselors have turned we read about that in Isaiah 55 I don't have time not only does it seem that David is losing everything but here's the, the true but, but his life is in danger we do not see David challenging God anymore something happened at the Mount of Olives something happened in that prayer he is not saying why did God allow this to happen to me We do not hear him demanding that God deliver him from the hand of Absalom. I think he knew that the hand of Absalom was the hand of God. David needed to be brought down. Just like Saul of Tarsus needed to be brought down off of his high horse. We do not see him wringing his hands and saying, at last, poor me. He doesn't appear to be alarmed or fearful. He can... And he can possibly have such peace. How can he possibly have such peace in the midst of this calamity? Well, see, nothing, David realized that nothing can happen to me but what God allows to happen to me. He has allowed it. And if he allows it, he has a good purpose for allowing it. So I will just commit my ways to the Lord and let him do what he deems best. I actually believe it takes far greater faith to commit your issues to the Lord than to man your own way. In commitment, there is contentment. In commitment, there is peace. In commitment, there is rest. You say, well, how do I get to this place of commitment that you're talking about? Number one, recognize that you and I are absolutely helpless without God. I mean this. I'm realizing this more and more every day. I pray the Lord's Prayer every day. He says, except the Lord watch the city, the watchman wake is in vain. It's it's in vain for the watchman to watch over the city if God's not watching over the city. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labor is in vain who builds it. The least beneficial thing that you can do is to worry about what you're going through. The Bible said, which of you through worry can add 18 inches to your height? God is leading us by our troubles for us to turn ourselves over to the mighty will of the Lord. As we read in Psalms, he said, this is something David learned. David said, commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. What will he bring to pass? He'll bring the will of God to pass in your life, the perfect will of God. One thing for that to happen, I need to realize his perfect love and know he wants only the very best for me. In fact, he already gave his very best for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When I realize if God spared not his son, his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more shall he not freely give all things to us? And then I know that I can rest in the perfect love that cast out all fear. I realize there's probably very few families in this whole building that don't have some major dysfunction going on somewhere in your family unit. I tell you, you may be longing, that that banished member of your family may be longing, but I'm telling you practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. Forgive, forgive. Put it in the hands and the will of God. Don't ever say, I will never restore a relationship. Don't be like David. Don't banish people. Your God will never banish you. Don't give up on your children. Keep loving your children. Be careful to watch that you're not asking for rules greater than the relationship that you have built with your family because it won't work. It'll only lead to rebellion. But God loves you, and God wants to restore us. And you know what? David... David did go over to that place where he used to worship God, and he starts worshiping God. Reminds me of of old Job and all that happened to him. And Job said, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So what do you do while you're waiting on the Lord? What you do is you worship God. You be content in the fact that God knows best. God, I'm going to give this family member over to you. I'm going to be nice to them as I possibly can. I'll keep the proper boundaries that I need to keep. But I'm going to keep on loving. I'm going to keep on forgiving. I'm going to keep on waiting. I'm going to leave the light on. I'm going to leave a way for them to come back. But it'll be on certain conditions for sure. But I'm never going to close the door completely because I'm serving a great big God that can do great big things. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray today, the great restorer, one of the things that David wrote about, he said, the Lord is his Saver." He said, the Lord was the one that could restore your soul. He's the one that can give you sanity back. He's the one that can put love back in your marriage. He's the one that can put respect back into your parenting. And God loves you. And if you'll surrender it all to him today, he will help you do that. I really believe that with all my heart. In Jesus' name, we.